next, next Monday, I'd take 16 of us heading off to, to Israel. And uh, it's funny, as I was reading over the notes again, um, one of the highlights of being in Israel was going to see the temple walls and that were built. And to know that uh, you're preaching Nehemiah and then next week you see the stones that he, he, he helped restore. It's kind of a real special, special moment if you've not been to the Holy Lands or if you've not been out there and seen that, it uh, brings the scriptures alive. And so if you're a Bible junkie and you like to read it the way I do and you're a history buff, it says Israel is a good place. So when we organize another trip again, make sure you book yourself in for it. And we, well, I think we do it quite cheaply, but I think that's a whole other story for another time. Anyway, chapter two, um, uh, we're in the book of Nehemiah and it's serious, it's, you know, it's called Changing Your World in 52 Days. And many of you know that when you grab hold of a vision that God equips you to do things really quickly. And uh, this was a miracle. If you saw the size of these stones, you would understand how miraculous this was. Uh, but we're picking up in chapter two. Thomas did uh, uh, chapter one last week. Um, but this is quite a long chapter. I just want to read it all before I go into some stuff on it. In the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, uh, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. You know that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Basically what that meant was that if somebody tried to assassinate the king, through poison, he would drink the cup first and he would die, not the king. So it was a pretty, pretty uh, low-level job. But anyway, he took the wine, gave it to the king. It had not been, it said this, he had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked him, who was obviously quite emotionally aware, the king said, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. King said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Good place to start when you're talking to the king about to ask him for help. They answered the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant was found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? If it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And um, may I have a letter of Asher, uh, keeper of the royal parks, that he will give me timber to make the beams of the gates and the citadel of the temple and the city walls uh, for the residence that I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted me my request. So I went to the governors of Tran-Euphrates and gave the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat and Horonite and Tobai, or the, Amorite, uh, sorry, the Ammonite officials heard about this, they were very much disturbed and someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah inspected the, the walls. I went into Jerusalem and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone of what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out to the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examined the wells of Jerusalem, sorry, the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates had been broken and destroyed by fire. When I moved on the foundations of the, uh, the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went to the valley by night, examined the wall. Finally, I, took, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I, where I had gone and what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials and any others who would be doing the work. 
Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them by a gracious hand of God and I explained to them all the things that the king had done. And then he said this, he answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you will have no share in the Jerusalem and claim the historic rights to it. Um, you see, whenever you begin to start a project or you get a vision, there will always be objectors and people who will say no. I remember when I came to start down Patrick uh, many years ago, the amount of pastors that I spoke to said, you're mad in the head, don't do it. I still agree with them, but I did it anyway. And uh, it's funny when God comes along, how he equips, he gives power uh, when he has a, 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 a vision and a practical insight. Um, this is quite an interesting story when you, when you read through it. It's a story of a, of a man who had leadership but was an ordinary person. Uh, just a recap from last week where we were, God had put this burden on him. In case you missed it, uh, the walls had been reckoned. It was the year 44 BC, 444 BC. The, the, the walls of Jerusalem had been down for 140 years. And the people felt hopeless and they were in despair. Um, the, 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 these days, um, historically for the Israelites, was the Israelites hokey cokey. You know, if you read the Old Testament, you see one time they're in and one time they're out. And they would get themselves very comfortable and do really well. And then they would get wandering away. They weren't really bright people. They just kept doing the hokey-cokey. And what would happen was they would get sacked. And eventually, the walls that were built, um, and this is now the second temple, and Nehemiah is bringing restoration back so that they weren't going to be um, in pain anymore. And... Um, um, he said this to his brother. He said, the walls are down and the gates have been burned. And Nehemiah was devastated by the state of his ancestral home. Uh, I wonder if you've ever been devastated by the state of your home. You know, uh, many of you have got an old home that you're trying to fix up. A few of you know what I'm talking about. And uh, um, I see some eyes looking at each other. Um, I wonder if you've ever been devastated that if you brought somebody in, you'd be slightly embarrassed with the state of it if there was mildew and walls and the back door was lying open because it had been burnt down for 140 years. You see, you wouldn't be too happy about it. You'd want to do something about it. And this, this king um, from Persia, who's a pretty, you know, pretty infamous king, grants this cupbearer who had found favor in his day. Can I ask you a question? Who do you find favor from? Have you got any? Have you ever found favor? We all want to be the favorite, but are you really? It's funny, it's funny how when you start analyzing yourself, what I want to do today is try and put you in Nehemiah's shoes and make you think, how Nehemiah would. I mean, here's this guy who was just a lowly type of person. He was a cupbearer. He was the lowest of low. I mean, he didn't have huge skills. Not too hard to drink nice wine in the king's chamber. But the chances are you're going to die at any point of someone who didn't like the king would put a load of poison in it. And he was basically a glorified butler. And, and he, he comes along, and he's the type of person that whatever had happened, he had obviously built a relationship with the king. And God often sets us up where he puts us in places with kings and queens in order to bring influence. And we saw last week that if you knew, he sat down and he cried. He saw the state of his home and he decided that he was going to do something about it. He cried, it got a touch of his heart and he knelt down and prayed. And then he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something. I can't stay here any longer. I actually have to do something about this. And that's what he did. He'd heard the news. He'd got emotion. He couldn't contain it. And he captured a burden of something that had to rebuild the house of the Lord. And I wonder what, what, what breaks your heart with what breaks God's heart. And he sat down and he cried and he caught this vision. He said, somebody has to do it. And this guy wasn't a building contractor. He wasn't even a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a king. He was a simple 
cupbearer, an ordinary person. And for some unknown reason, God took this ordinary person and in 52 days gave him this incredible, I'm going to do something about this. Uh, if, you're, if you're here today and you don't really feel like you're a world-class, world-changing leader, then honestly, I would say, why not? You see, if you're a Christian today, by definition, you're meant to be a leader in your community. If you know and love the Lord, you're meant to have a position of influence and authority. Um, I love what Bill Johnson said. He said, he with the most influence has the most influence. It's really simple. But sometimes I don't think we think like we have influence. And what you have is this ordinary person comes along and he does something that's lifelong, world-changing, that today we're still talking about it hundreds and hundreds of years later. You know, when God puts a burden on your soul, and as I said, you know, a few years back, probably coming up on maybe 15 years ago now, when God puts a burden in your heart to do something, I was a wee boy, I was brought up in a council estate, was dyslexic, had a stutter, um, didn't read my first book till I was 16. Um, still don't read many of them, to be honest with you. I like articles and I like listening to things, but reading things isn't, isn't a passion, though I've had to get better at that when you're a pastor of a church. You should definitely read. It's a good thing to read, especially your Bible. But uh, I, I, as you go along... God begins to put a passion and a burden. And, and when you lose your vision and you lose your direction, which I had because I really wanted to take my wife and take her to Fiji and become a diving instructor, that sounded like the right type of life that I wanted to do. She said it comes with a free divorce. And, uh, you know, she's a home bird. But um, what happened was God began to put this burden. And what happened was there was this group of young people who loved the Lord and were passionate about the things of the Spirit but hadn't found a spiritual home. And, and they came to our house Different age groups came, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8.30, and 9.30. And there was four different groups came for about three or four years. And what happened was these group of young people became adults. And they had a love and a passion for Antrim, unbeknownst to me, because at that stage I couldn't wait to get out of the place. And, uh, you know, what, you know what, what good can come from Nazareth? What good can come from Antrim or Downpatrick? That's what they say. And when people tell you, you know, don't plant a church in Downpatrick, that was called the church planter's graveyard. Because lots of people try to plant churches and none of them are really successful. And there, I think there's reasons for that. But when God begins to put a burden in your heart and a vision, all these people come along and they start to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Uh, I, can I start a church? No. Will you help me? No. Will you bless me? No. And what happens is when you're an idiot like me, and honestly, that's the perception. When you're an idiot like me who really was this, how could I ever fit into a world of the pastor's branch? Do you know, I spent 10 years trying to fit into that branch and then established that I wasn't like them and decided I wouldn't be like that anymore. And somehow there's freedom in that. And now what I'm realizing is all those pastors who were doing that don't like that anymore and want to do something different. And it's funny how, how when God comes along, how do you become someone who's influential? How do you become someone who has the most influence in your work, your life, and your community? Can I ask you a question? It starts from the burden on your heart. Nehemiah got this burden. How do I know? The Bible says that he went through the ruins, saw what state it was in, and began to cry. I, I walked through the ruins of Antrim, the ruins of Downpatrick, way before we started this church. And you realize that the world today needs Jesus in a way they've never needed it before. And what happens is when God begins to put that burden in your heart and you begin to do what most leaders forget to do sometimes is you begin to pray. You see, the majority of Northern Ireland people are fixers. You're all rescuers. We're all rescuers. We want to fix things. We want to come along and establish new things. But actually, sometimes we want to fix things out of our own strength. But what happened was Nehemiah had come along and he felt the favor of God. How do I know that? Well, he began to pray and God answered his prayers. And you see God equipping him 
with this very clear thing. You want to be a, a change a world leader, you have to define your mission very clearly. You have to define your mission clearly. Um, Nehemiah had a mission. How do I know? Well, he wandered through the city streets and he prayed. He saw the state it was in ruins and God dropped something deep in his soul. And he said he didn't tell anybody about what was on his heart. Can I ask you a question? What's on your heart today? What's on your heart? What's on, what's on your heart to, to, to have a passion and a call? Because I think sometimes what happens is whenever you get to a certain age and a certain state of life, you get stuck. I got married, had kids, you know, was doing okay in business. And then all of a sudden it's like, now what, God? You know, you're 30-something, you're going, now what do I do? You know, is this it? Is this the rest of my life? Is this really what you've called me to do? And I said, God, what, what should I do? Nothing. Get nothing. But God, what should I do? What I didn't realize was I was doing it. And what I had to do was I had to take what I was doing at the site with those young people and bring in the men. And you know what I love now? Some of those young people are, are on our eldership team or on our leadership team as they come through the church. So when God comes along, he puts our desires and our burdens and he joins them together. And then he gives you a very clear vision. You need to define your mission very clearly. Can I ask you a question? What mission are you on? You know, we often think, well, I've got a mission to raise kids. That's a great mission. Then what? If you've got a backup plan, what do you do afterwards? You know, I, I'm, uh, someone referred to Rachel yesterday as Pastor Ash. And uh, that didn't go down so well, if you know Rachel. And um, uh, she's like, I'm not a pastor. No, but the person referred to them as Pastor Ash. I had some laugh. It was very funny to me. But you see, Rachel is a pastor. She just doesn't pastor a church. You see, she goes to the girls' model school with a whole bunch of crazy shankle girls. And, um, and she pastors them. And over the last week, the start of, uh, one of the SU workers have been coming in, some of the local community workers have been coming in, they've started a prayer meeting for the staff on a Friday morning, which she's cock a hoop about because it's never happened in the history. And uh, last week, a whole bunch of her staff that she'd been evangelizing to came along to it, and her principal came. And her principal's a little bit scary, okay? It's just one of those principals. Every principal should be a little bit scary, right? Right? Some of you are going triggering. <laughs> anyway, um, and she says, I'm going to pray for her this week. I'm going to lay hands on her. She's going to fill with the Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh, you. And she's like, you know, it's like she, I, she talks about her school the same way I talk about church. And we fight for conversation at night. She wants to tell me all about school and I want to tell her about church. You know, it's like Mervyn and Sharon. Mervyn wants to tell Sharon about the cows and she's not interested. <laughs> But isn't it funny how it works? But what I love about it is this, is that the passion that runs in both of us is the calling of God in our lives. What are you passionate about? The problem with today, world, we're depressed. We don't have a passion. You need to find a burden. You need to find a holy burden. And you need to be big enough and, and strong enough to get out of your bed and do something about it. As I said last week, you know, you, it, Nehemiah decided to do something. What do you decided to do? Too many of us sit still. We've got great dreams and visions. I'm a visioner. I'm always vision fluttering up here you know it's like it's like we could do that oh that's right we need two million. Oh, that's easy for god <laughs> catherine's laughing <laughs> you, you know it's like we want to start a school uh, you know we we, we want to um stacy wants to start a nurture house what's a nurture house i hear you say a, a massive big house where where children can come and they can be interactive and counseled and and, and we do play therapy with them there and uh, I, uh, we did a bit of a sums on it you know we, we only need six hundred and fifty thousand. You see, here's the thing. If I said to you, could any of you raise 650,000 by the end of next year? You'd go, no chance. There's no way. 
But if I said to you that you need 650,000 to have a life-saving operation for a family, what would you say? Well, all of a sudden, the vision would change. You'd be going, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to have a good go at it. You see, without vision, nothing will work. You have to get a vision and decide, hey, if God's in it, he'll, he'll make it work. And we've seen that hand and hand and hand. One of the reasons why we haven't updated you in the building, and it probably should have been bought by now, but you need to know something, that when we started this, this project back in, in, in June last year, the interest rates were, were about 0.25%. Today, they're about 4.5%, which means any borrowing we do is going to be about 8.5%. And, and trust me, as much as you're very blessed and good, kind givers, you ain't given enough to cover that right now. So we're having to go back and restructure and look at the financial package. But we haven't lost the vision. We're going to buy the building. In fact, we have to assign the documents now. So it's ours. I just have to figure out where I'm going to get the 300000 from that it doesn't bankrupt the church in the meantime. But we still have a vision to do it, but we've got to rely on God to do it. And what happens is when God comes along with something, he makes things happen. Even when the economy starts to dictate different things, do you think the economy was dictating things? Nehemiah had a very clear vision. What was it? I'm going to go and build the walls. He told the king, if it pleases the king, I'm going to go build the walls. He had a vision to build walls. Now he wasn't, an architect, he wasn't a, a brickie. He didn't know how to do these things. He just had this vision. And then he had to get to the resources to be able to do that. How, how, how did he, he get the resources? Well, he came along and, and he asked the king who God had put him in there for two letters to resource the work of the job. He needed safe passage. You know, the Trans-Euphrates historically was a dodgy place to go. If you, were, if you were bringing money or finances, it was a bit like Robin Hood was on the side of every corner trying to steal from the rich and give to the poor. And that was kind of where that geographical area was. And it was a bit of a delicate place to move from. So he needed a letter to get through because if he had the King of Persia's stamp on that, nobody was touching him. Because the king of Persia, usually the Persians were really dodgy people. Do you know when they came to sack a village or a city, they would actually skin them alive and bury them in their neck in the sand? That, that's kind of the, the reputation they had. So you didn't want to mess with the king of Persia. And yet Nehemiah used the king of Persia to get a letter from. And then he said, by the way, I, I need the guy who's the head woodworker, the guy who looks after the forestry, because I'm going to need a lot of wood to do this. He needs scaffolding and planks and, and doors and all the rest of it. And the king of Persia writes him a letter and equips him for all of these things. And here's the funny thing is, the king, he probably didn't have to pay too much for the wood. You know, because the king of Persia said, give him the wood. You're going to give him the wood. You understand? That's not up for debate. It's a, it's a happening. And God comes along. When, when he gives Nehemiah this vision, he equips him with the resources to do it. And Nehemiah comes along, and I don't want to get ahead for, for what may happen over the, over the next couple of weeks, but, but when, when God comes along, he has this vision to build the walls. He will now set his target on that thing. And I was thinking about that galleon ship, and Catherine shared a little bit about that. I want to share with you. What happened was, whenever I had a picture of a galleon ship, it was empty, it had no sails and no engine. And it crashed into Ireland and God was about to bring revival. And this morning, I just was up early, I, I saw a picture and it was a new picture but it had a whole bunch of deckhands on it. And people were pulling sails up and people were doing that. Some people were scrubbing the deck and other people were down making the food and other people were staring and someone up in the crow's nest and there's people at the point looking out. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's not just me that's steering this ship anymore. I've got a whole crew of people that are ready to do the vision. And Nehemiah comes along and he inspires a whole crew to get involved. And as in the next few weeks as we go along, you'll see how he managed that and what he did as a leader, how to do that. But what was the twinkle in his eye that made people follow him? You see, we don't follow just anybody. 
Um, I, I have a, often a definition of, of people who, who I like to follow. I, I determine that by, by could I follow them? Have you ever thought about that? Who do you follow? What do you follow? What inspires you to following? You know, it's funny when you're a pastor of a church, you have to, you have to be a leader to people who don't like you. I've got a few of them, all right? If you start like this, they don't like you at the start. You know, they might even hate you. And then they grow to respect you. And, and then they kind of grow to like you. And after a while, they love you. It's kind of how it works sometimes. Why? Well, because when you have a vision, people don't follow people. They follow vision. And if a man has a vision or a woman has a vision or a team of people have a vision, people like to get on board with that. One, because it feels safe when there's a group of you. There's not just one anymore. And what I love is after a while, God starts bringing these people together and you surround a bunch of people with a vision and you go, how do we make that happen? Well, can I tell you something? You're the deckhands. And some people have to clean the toilets. All right? And some people get to steer the ship and other people get up in the crow's nest where they're up out of the way and they can see for miles and other people you know, get to be down in the basement and, 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 and fixing the stuff that's breaking down. And, 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 but together you come together and you be a team of people who steady the ship and set course and set sail for a voyage to a destination. Well, what's a destination? We don't know. Or do we? See, the destination set by God because it's a vision that you follow. And if you can't get on board with that, you'll end up, you'll end up struggling. Um, you, the other thing that a world-changing leader does, it makes some careful plans. You know, we just don't go into buying a building and thinking, what are we going to do with that? We have all these plans, all these dreams, all these ideas, all these, all these things that we would love to do and all of that. We, we would love to do all of that. Do we have the money? No. Do we have the people? No. Do we have the teams ready to go? No. But I can tell you this, with a vision and a bunch of people coming in behind that vision and passionate, we'll get there. You know, if I had a, <laughs> I think a good thing for you guys in Down Patrick is, if you watch where we were, this kind of remind. I remember, I remember a, quite a famous worship group coming, you know, it was, um, it was uh, uh, Will Reagan and United Pursuit. We were in the, the crummiest little community center. It had a very small building. It was painted budgy yellow. And it had a big echo void with a, a room that came down to this. And it was the worst place for sound on the planet. And we had the dopiest wee PA system. And when you speak, it just boomed everywhere. And Will Regan came in to lead worship. And I want to think back to it with no shame because you'd never have done it to him. And I spoke to him a few years later. He says, you know, John, that was one of the favorite days of my life. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, that definitely wasn't one of the favorite days of my life. But what he saw was a bunch of people committed to a vision. And as you see, you grow, you develop, and you move into one place, and, and then you move into another place. And we started in St. Patrick's Centre Repair Meeting, and then we move into this building, and this building's been great. And I have just been recently thinking about how terrible this building was when we came into it and triggered again, because it was stinking. Those carpets and those ceiling tiles. You, who cleaned the... You, put your hands up if you cleaned those frames of the ceiling tiles. Catherine, Edwin, Thomas. You see, you missed all the fun. But there was about 500 years of smoke in this ceiling, so there was from the days when you used to smoke with the bingo halls. It was minging. And we took all those ceiling tiles out and replaced them. We cleaned all the framework. Oh, hey, it looks great. And then we peeled the carpet up. The carpet was stuck down not just by glue, <laughs> by years and years of dear knows what. It was, it was terrible. But we pulled it all up and it took forever to get a whole bunch of people to pull it up. Nobody wanted to do it. And I think it ended up me and Thomas doing the most of it and Raymond were just honking the stuff out of the thing with shovels trying to get it out. And we got it all down and it was terrible. It was the worst jobs ever, painting the wall. It was like these walls suck paint. 
You put one coat up, you had to put another one on, and then that didn't work, and you put it on. I think some of these walls had seven coats of paint. It's like just sucking them in. And the cabling that was around here from the old bingo machines was pulling wires and wires out. And they kept, anyway, it was an awful job. But why did we do it? Why did we commit to sort it all out? Because we had a, we had a bigger vision and a bigger call to put something that became a temple to worship God in. But it's not just about worshiping God. It's about equipping the saints for actual service. Why? To get into this community. And you've, we've got to make this church grow. We, 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 we can't just go into that building and leave it there and think that's great. One, because we'll rattle and it'll sound a bit naked. But yet with a vision and a passion and setting clear and careful plans, we'll do it. And, and, and Nehemiah set himself some very clear plans and he got himself some, some material to help him do that. And, and, and one of the things that, that you have to do is, is whenever you're going to be a world changer and you take faithful steps, it's a step at a time. You know, if you identify a mission, I, I, want, to, I want to relieve world poverty. That's a great mission to have, but you're never going to do it. You know why? It's far too big. You, you, you can't go, I want to relieve world poverty and think, how am I going to do that? You'll never get there. How do we start? Well, we start small. You know, you know what, I'll go and work in the local food bank. I'll start here and I'll try and help people who work world poverty. We'll start there. And you start a little step each day. And, and, and if you keep your passion going and God's in it, what happens is it begins to grow. And things get bigger and before you know it, you might be the manager of the food bank. Overseeing it and pulling in food and helping people in the local community get fed. And then after a while, well maybe somebody in the food bank overall, the Trestle Trust or something, come along and go, hey, you know what? That, you're doing a really good job of that. Could you come and help us do something bigger? Go, okay, well, maybe God's in that. Well, I want to change the world, but, but, but how was it going to get there? And, and now you might be looking after the UK-wide Trestle Trust who's looking after all the food banks wanting to relieve world hunger. And all of a sudden, you're actually starting to do the original vision. But what do you do? Well, you just don't arrive in and become the director of Trestle Trust. How do you start? You start serving the local food bank. And sometimes we miss that. How do you start? We start cleaning the toilets. You start getting down the deckhand. And the problem is some of you sit there and go, oh, I'm jealous. I, I want to be, be that person. You know, the, the body is a body of, of the Lord. You know, and, and, and the Bible says that, you know, a hand and an arm and a head and the right bones connect and all that stuff. You remember the song. But I have never met anybody coming in going, I want to be the big toe. I want to be the heart. I want to be the brain. You know, I, I, I want to be the spine. No, I don't want to be the big toe. Who wants to be the big toe? But have you ever tried walking without a big toe? This is a place for everybody to get on board. And I want to say this. Don't nullify your vision and don't make it too big. Start small. Commit to something. I tell you, you know, I often say this to people. What do you do? Well, when we're the pastors, when you're the pastor, you're the pastor of everything from stacking chairs, cleaning coffee stains on the carpet, taking stains out of the toilet, if you know what I'm saying, unblocking the sink, building the stages, painting the roof, cleaning the ceiling tiles. That's where you start. Now, I, I'm not thrilled about going back into doing that, but I know I'm about to start again. And we're like, how are we going to do this? We're going to build a stage. The difference is this. It's not going to be me doing it this time. It's going to be you and Thomas. You think I'm joking? You see, you see, there's something about getting together to build something so powerfully. So coming together and finding a place. And, and world changers, as I finish, you know, 
when, when world changers come together, um, like Nehemiah did at that, he inspires people passionately. And you'll read next week about how he came together and he, he shares his vision with a bunch of the Israelites. They were in wreck and ruin. And he gets a small group of people together and he starts going, are you ready to build? And they're all like, huh? You know, because when you read about it, you know, and what he does is he sees his vision and he knows how to do it. He starts going, okay, I'm going to put that family to there and I'm going to put you to there. But he inspires passionately for people to follow. You see, I might get up here and, and I, I, I get frustrated sometimes. I still get frustrated sometimes. And you get up and you're like, come on, people, waking up. Get out of your bed. You know, Proverbs says, get out of your slumber. You know, get out of your lazy bed and do something. And sometimes I feel like I'm going, wait, come on. I can't do any more hours in the week or I'm going to die. And I realize I'm 50 and you can't. It's like, I want to be 16 again. But you can't. You get tired and you get moanier and you get grumpier as you get older. I used to think that was a myth and then I realized it's true. You're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Don't be grumpy, old people. You know, you know ask the Lord for hard living a mind of a, and the ability of a 16-year-old. Maybe not 16. <laughs> let's get you past that. Let's, let's ask for the heart of a 25-year-old, all right? That's probably better because, no, that's not, that's not good. All right? But what, ask the Lord for, for something that gets you out of bed in the morning. I all of a sudden realized that, that, that come on up again, Chris. Um, I often realize that, that when you get a vision and God captures something, then you're like, okay, I thought if I led 200 people to Jesus or got 200 people in church, I would take our local town, rare to go. And I got them all in a big room and I realized I had 201 problems. And I thought, God, this isn't, we're not going to be able to do anything with this group of people. Why? Because we're all nuts. We're broken and we're damaged and we had no idea what we're doing and I had no clue what it was to, you know, and you sit in this room with 200 people and they're all staring at you going, now where are we going? And most days in that early stages you get up and you're winging it. Like honestly, Sunday mornings were a wing and a prayer. And it was like every Sunday morning you felt like you were in a hamster wheel. Just going round and round and round. And after a while people started to catch it and you just keep going and you faithfully served and we faithfully showed up and we faithfully prayed and we faithfully, we just faithfully, that's all we did. We just faithfully. And as we faithfully built, slowly but surely, step by step, passion by passion, bringing a bunch of people in, asking the Lord for the right people, we began to build this temple, these walls, of something that I think at the heart of God is to bring revival back to, our, to Ireland. And, and that's why we're doing this. We're not doing this because we want a nice shiny building. We're not, though that helps. We're not doing this because we want to be the best. We're not doing this to fill seats, though that's great. The last thing I need is 300 people from other churches broken and damaged. Hear me? It's a nightmare. Because I've got to spend all those years trying to fix all the rubbish than that to get them going. But when you get a bunch of people together who get on the same page and see the vision and capture it, God drops something in your heart. You'll get out of bed for that. You'll put your money into it. You'll put your time, your prayer life, your energies, and you will go after it. And you might be sitting out there going, no, but I'm, I'm 70 or whatever. Hey, you know, let, let the young people do the, do, do the stuff. But you know what young people need? They need disciples. They need champions. They need people who will just go, hey, just, just come, on, come on away from that bank. Get out of there. You know, or, hey, you, back. 
Come on back in. And it's not that you get to lead, but you get to lead in a way that's marvelous where you get in behind and you go, you know what gets me out of bed when I watch the Thomases and the Mike and Rihanna's and the Sri and Jordans and all the young ones that I spent years in fact. You know, Rihanna came to youth fellowship I led when she was 12. And three Sundays in a row, three different people came in and prophesied to her that she would, she would lead worship that would change a nation. And Rihanna was scared of her wits and she came through. I think you know Rihanna. And Rihanna, Rihanna was scared of her wits and, and she just grew and grew and grew. And one day she was hiding, singing her operatic voice behind a keyboard. And she was doing great, but I'm like, there's more in you, girl. She's like, but I'm scared. I'm scared to let it go. I'm scared to come out. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what we're going to do. And one day in the school, I said, you're done with your keyboard. You're not hiding behind it anymore. What? You need a keyboard off me? I can't do it without a keyboard. Yes, you can. So now you're in front of a mic and she's exposed. And God did something in her where it's just like all of a sudden she went from 50% to 100%. And we handed her the worship just a few, few months ago. And, and now she's grabbing hold of these and she's passionate. She's taking the young ones in and she's, you know what I love about it is? I, I discipled her and now she's discipling other people. That, that gets me out of bed in the morning. It's like I see, I see my, my daughter Erin come in a while back going, Dad, I led three of my friends to Jesus. I'm like, yes, I've done something right. And she's cut from the old branch, you know. She's like, Ethan's more like his mummy. Erin's more like me. But without pushing them too hard and beating them and flogging them, they've grown their own faith. They've, they've stepped into their own place. Why? It's true discipleship. And the problem with this is that we've got a wrong idea about discipleship. You come to get fed. Feed me. Listen, you've been fed for 40 years. You Stop it. You know it. Thessalonians 2 says, you, you know it. Now start living it. And what have we got to do? Well, we've got to just not know it anymore, not be taught and excited. And another impassionate speaker coming along and inspiring you in division. Sometimes you actually have to get your hammer and chisel out and start building. I want to ask you this morning, what are you going to build? What are you going to commit to? What are you going to put your finances into? What are you going to put your heart and soul into? What are you going to put your passion into? Well, Nehemiah got a bunch of Israelites who were lost and lonely and were, their time was in wreck. I think Dan Patrick's town in wreck. I saw an article yesterday that a casino or a poker den wants to go in on the building across the road. And the local councillors are going, none of it. I'm thinking, okay, that's good. Do you know what? I'd love that to happen. You know why? Right outside our door would be a whole bunch of very right people who need to know the Lord. But we don't think like that. Why? Well, keep them out. Keep the, no, 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 bring them in. I'll finish this story. I've been working with my guys. Tell me you know a fly fish. Anything with fly fish in the river. It's, it's my only level of sanity, as I say, in the week if we go fly fishing. But we fish at night when the fish come in. They're big, kind of like we fish at night. But for the last three and a half years, when a guy come to me, he fishes with us. He's a really good fisherman. Well, he's coming to me and he's just drawn alongside and they call me John the Baptist in the river. All right? and, and, and they come alongside and he comes along and he says, John, can I talk to you? So what's up? He says, I'm, I've been really depressed. Me and my wife have split up. And, you know, he says, you know my background. I says, no, I don't. I did, but I didn't tell him that. You know, it's paramilitary background. And um, he says, I've grown up and I went to Sunday school with my granny. And I know all my days, I know Jesus is real, but I can't, pluck up the courage to ask him back into my life and go back to church. I said, well, look, that, that's easy. That, that's, that's the easy bit. The hard bit is you have to get over yourself. He starts to weep on the side of the river and he's, I mean, 
this guy's leadership in a local paramilitary organization. And you're like, hmm, you make the paramilitaries cry, you're doing something right. And he says, I've done too many things wrong, John. I says, I know, me too. And I says, the good thing about God is there's nothing he can't forgive. And he wrestled with this for the last year and a half. And he keeps talking to me and seek messages and, you know, and, and, and all that has been going on. He messaged me on New Year's Eve. And he said, I went to church tonight to an evening service. And there was a guy who spoke about Jesus at the end of it. And I gave my heart back to Christ. I was like, yes. And he was at our church in Antrim last Sunday morning. And he came up at the end and he said, if I had known that this is what it was like, I'd have done it a long time ago. I said, well, I've been trying to tell you that for years. And he's like, this is the best decision I've ever made in my life. And I'm thinking, half of this church wouldn't have touched that guy with a barge pole because of who he was. And we need to get a bigger vision and a bigger picture. And, you know, who's God called us to? And what I love about Journey is this. We get all sorts. You know, you look around this room, you're all sorts, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed that. And the truth is, is if we're all jelly babies, we'd, be, we'd get bored. God, God's in the business of bringing Friday, a bunch of people together with your gift and your gift and your gift. Put them in a box together and you get a whole bunch of nuts in a box together. I love Ravels. You know why I love Ravels? You never know what you're going to get. And then you get disappointed when you, when you used to get the coffee ones that took them out. And then you used to get the, the toffee ones. You didn't like them. I like the orange ones. You know the orange one. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like everybody's like, no, all you control freaks, like, no, that's too risky for me. Just give me Maltesers. I know where I'm at with that. And yet, God puts a whole bunch of different things in it, and he does something powerful. Let's stand. God, today, would you help us build an incredible temple that people can come and know you and worship you and, and just get to know you deeper. But today, I pray for a direct calling, a direct vision, and a direct burden. Lord, would you drop into the heart, Lord, the folks here, Lord, those who would just be visionless or passionless or, or drop a burden in their soul for something that would change a nation. In Jesus' name we pray.